Welcome to the A Catholic Life Podcast. I am Matthew, the author of A Catholic Life, welcoming you to episode 55 of the A Catholic Life Podcast. In today's episode on the third Sunday of Lent, I'm happy to address the following topics. First, the readings and spirituality for this third Sunday of Lent. Secondly, the upcoming special feast in some places in honor of our Lord's five most holy wounds. Third, an article I recently did on the Protestant attack on Lenten penance and what we can learn from it. And lastly, the heirs of the Donatists and why they matter today. This was the subject of a recent article of mine at the Fatima Center, and I think the article is particularly relevant in our era today. So I go over some practical issues that the Donatists pose for us today and what we as Catholics can learn from it. But before I go into these issues, I'd like to stop and thank the sponsor for today's episode. This episode is sponsored by MyCatholicWill.com. MyCatholicWill.com provides simple and effective tools to pass on the heritage of our faith and positively impact future generations of Catholics across the country. Ensure your legacy and family are protected, while also leaving behind a way to support the Church. Please use discount code CATHOLICLIFE20, that's all in one lowercase and all together, CATHOLICLIFE20, to save on your order. Now, on to the first topic of today's episode. We are now entering uh, the midpoint soon of the Lenten journey. We're not quite there yet, but this third Sunday of Lent is a way for us to really reflect on how the Lenten season has gone for us so far and what we can be doing differently, whether that is in prayer, whether it's in fasting, or whether it's in almsgiving. We should really see what we can be doing to intensify these disciplines and thus prepare for the upcoming Paschal Solemnities. Now, the third Sunday of Lent, this particular Sunday, we read about in the Gospel our Lord's dispute and um, his really triumph over the devil, how he, uh, how he cast out uh, devils. And this is taken from the Gospel of Luke chapter 11. But I also want to share what Dom Geringer writes on this particular third Sunday of Lent. I feel like his wisdom throughout the liturgical year in his work, the liturgical year, is particularly moving and relevant for us even today. And this is what he says, quote, This third Sunday of Lent is called Oakley from the first word of the introit. In the primitive church, it was called Scrutiny Sunday because it was on this day that they began to examine the catechumens who were to be admitted to baptism on Easter night. All the faithful were invited to assemble in the church in order that they might bear testimony to the good life and morals of the candidates. At Rome, these examinations were called the scrutinies, and they were made on seven different occasions on account of the great number of the aspirants to baptism, but the principal scrutiny was that held on the Wednesday of the fourth week. He continues, The station was and still is in the Basilica of St. Lawrence outside the walls. The name of this, the most celebrated of the martyrs of Rome, would remind the catechumens that the faith that they were about to profess would require them to be ready for many sacrifices, end quote. Now, it is called Oakley Sunday because the introit states, My eyes are ever towards the Lord, for he shall free my feet from the snare. Look upon me and have pity on me, for I am alone and poor. These are the sentiments, many of these different Lenten um, introits throughout the weekdays and the weekends really emphasize. This is what Father Pius Parshas, in brief, 
regarding this third Sunday of Lent. Quote, the main theme of this Sunday might be formulated in different ways. One note stands out prominently, however, the idea of transition from darkness to light, or the strong one, the devil, being vanquished by the stronger one, Christ. Whereas the first two Sundays treated of extreme opposites, namely temptation and transfiguration, this Sunday takes a middle course and deals with the struggle between darkness and light, between the devil and Christ. This warfare can end in the victory for the light, and this is the concern of the church for us, but it can also end in defeat for us, a possibility which the gospel considers when it speaks about the seven devils that return to take possession of the man who has already been freed of one devil, for the latter should only serve as a warning to us. The liturgy takes it for granted that Christ will be victorious in us, yet no matter what the outcome of the battle in the individual soul, it is important to instruct the Christian people on the nature of original sin, its effect in us. This Sunday provides a good example, end quote. This is a fitting Sunday, as Dom Guerin J. mentions, that we should pray for those preparing for the Holy Sacrament of Baptism, for those catechumens. We should pray that they be firm in their resolutions, that despite family opposition or internal conflict, they proceed with their reception into the Holy Catholic faith. We should also pray for all of those lapsed Catholics who have fallen away from the faith, especially those who have fallen away through bad example, through the errors of modernists or liberals who have unfortunately scandalized many souls. We see this, uh, unfortunately, in the horrific actions of the priestly abuse crisis, where these liberal priests have taken their position to abuse children and cause un, um, really unfathomable harm to the souls uh, under their charge and throughout the nation. I hope that more people can use this Lent to make reparation for sins, as well as to pray for the conversion and work for the conversion very actively of those who are not Catholic as well as those who have fallen away from the faith. We should do everything we can to, to do more works of charity during this Lenten season. And as St. Lawrence would have us know, since today is uh, the stational church in the Basilica of St. Lawrence, he would have us know that concern for the poor and charity for them and for those who are suffering should really also underscore all of our Lenten work. And through this, through prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, we can truly cast out the devil from our own lives and, and have a better resolve to triumph over temptation in our own lives. So the third Sunday of Lent is a fitting Sunday to reflect on many of these different aspects. But on to the next topic of this lesson, I'd like to briefly mention that this upcoming Friday is the feast in honor of the five most holy wounds of our Lord. That is the Friday after the third Sunday of Lent. This is one of those movable feasts that was only said in certain places. And these movable feasts very often were connected with different moments in and uh, aspects of the passion of our Lord. And they're truly worthy of mentioning and meditating upon during this Lenten season, even if we're not hearing Mass on Friday using the propers from this particular Mass, we can still pray the Colic Prayer for this. So, for instance, this upcoming Friday is the Feast in Honor of the Five Most Holy Wounds. The earliest evidence of a feast in honor of the wounds of Christ comes from a monastery in the 14th century, where a feast was kept on the Friday after the octave of Corpus Christi. By the 15th century, it spread to other countries uh, as well, as well as made its way into breveries of various orders, like the Carmelites, the Franciscans, the Dominicans, and others. The Feast of the Five Wounds, celebrated since the Middle Ages at some places, was celebrated on February 6th in Portugal, uh, in Lisbon on the Friday after Ash Wednesday. And then it was also celebrated in other different dates in different places as well. For instance, the feast is celebrated in many different Spanish, I mean, sorry, Portuguese-speaking countries. 
Now, this particular feast, though, the Feast of the Five Wounds, has a more immediate um, placement on this particular Friday back into the year 1831. When the feasts in honor of the Passion were adopted by Rome by the Passionists in that year, this feast was assigned to the Friday after the third Sunday of Lent. The office is one of those bequeathed to us by the Middle Ages, and as this feast is not celebrated in the entire church, the office and the Mass are placed in the appendix of the Breviary and the Missal. I'll have a link in the show notes. You can read more information on the history of this feast and how it kind of moved around in different places if you're interested in that liturgy. But what I leave you with is this Friday is a wonderful day. Put it in your calendar to make a special uh, moment of reparation and meditation on the five holy wounds of our Lord. Here's the collect from that particular propers. It goes as follows. O God, who through the passion of your only begotten Son and the pouring out of his blood through the five wounds has restored to human nature what was lost through sin, grant we beseech thee that we who venerate the same wounds and precious blood on earth may gain their fruit in heaven. We ask this through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. I will also ask if you could keep in your prayer intentions the particular parish in honor of the five holy wounds in San Jose, California, which I was privileged to attend for a number of years when I was living in the Bay Area. That place was the home to the traditional Latin Mass for some years. It, I don't believe any longer is, but I do think we should pray for the people of this parish. It is historically a Portuguese-speaking parish. We see that as well in this history on this particular feast, has connection to the Portuguese. Let us pray for this parish, as well as all parishes, that are keeping this particular feast as well. Now on to the next topic of this episode. I'd like to discuss a recent article of mine on the Protestant attack on Lenten penance. And what I really want to emphasize here is that the Protestants are very much influenced by demonic forces against Lenten penance. This is what it comes down to. In the Middle Ages, abstinence from meat on Fridays and during all of Lent, not just on Fridays of Lent, that is abstinence from meat on Fridays throughout the year, as well as throughout all of Lent, was not only church law, it was civil law as well. And people gladly obeyed these laws out of respect for the teaching authority of the church. Yet after the Protestant revolt, which began in 1517 and continued through the middle of the 1600s, this was to change. For instance, Zwingli, the Protestant leader from Switzerland, directed multiple attacks against the merit of good works, including fasting and absence through the infamous affair of the sausage, which he had in 1522. He audaciously claimed that since scripture was the only authority, sausages were to be eaten publicly in Lent on defiance. This, of course, is a mortal sin, since to knowingly violate the church's laws and fast or absence is a mortal sin. It also should be noted that he directly violated the very scriptures themselves, since our Lord said we will be judged, of course, by our works, and that when he separates the sheep from the goats, he is doing so based on their works. If we look at the parables well as the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man went to hell and Lazarus went to heaven. And the rich man, what was his crime for not being charitable, for not having good works, for not supporting people like Lazarus who slept at his gate? Zwingli and Protestants failed to recognize that good works are evidence of the grace within us. Now, this did not only occur, though, in Switzerland. In England, for instance, following the revolt of Luther and its peers, King Henry VIII, who was previously given the title of defender of the faith by Pope Leo X, succumbed to heresy and schism when he broke from the Lord's established church in order to engage in adultery. This, of course, 
occurred in 1533. Church property was seized. Catholics were killed. Nuns, for instance, were killed. Monks were all the property was taken. And Catholicism was made illegal in England until 1559 under Queen Elizabeth I. And for 232 years, except during the brief reign of the Catholic King James II, which occurred from 1685 to 1688, the Catholic Mass was illegal in all of England until 1791. Much can be said as well over what the English did against the Irish to try to stamp out the faith from their land, how they went and they destroyed and burned the staff that was given to St. Patrick, and they tried to do everything they can to stamp out the faith, but they were not able to do so. And all the more reason we should pray for the Irish today to return to their truly Catholic roots and drive out the modern snakes and evil from their land. But despite all of this, something I do want to highlight is that the Anglicans still kept the Catholic customs of abstinence throughout the year. English royal proclamations supporting abstinence from meat continued to occur in England after 1563. They occurred in 1619, 1625, 1627, and 1631. The same likewise occurred in 1687 under King James II, he was the Catholic king who ruled very briefly before he was overthrown. And after that revolution, the Glorious Revolution, as it's called in 1688, and the overthrow of Catholicism by William III and Mary II, these laws, though, were no longer enforced. And they were not officially removed, though, from the statute of the English until as late as 1863. Now, Protestants largely abandoned fasting and other forms of mortification altogether in a complete rupture with the practice of all Christianity dating back to the apostles themselves. While some Lutherans and Methodists will voluntarily keep fasting days, it is uncommon and not practiced under obligation by them. Methodists who were founded by John Wesley in the 18th century, for instance, if they do fast, are more likely to observe the Daniel fast during the season of Lent, which is characterized by absence from meat, fish, eggs, dairy products, chocolates, ice cream, sugars, alcoholic beverages, largely an imitation of the book of Daniel, chapter 10, verses 3. The same also could be said over the Episcopalian Church, the American branch of Anglicanism, which largely abandoned fasting and absence by rewriting their Book of Common Prayer in the 1900s. But even amid the Protestant revolt, weakening disciplines continued to occur in Catholic nations at this time. This is all the more reason that what we must do, we must rise up to remember that it is our calling to observe the Lenten fast. It was instituted by the apostles themselves. This is attested to by St. Jerome, St. Leo the Great, St. Cyril of Alexandria, and others centuries and centuries before the Protestants ever were invented. In the second century, St. Irenaeus wrote to Pope St. Victor I to inquire on how Easter should be celebrated, and he mentions the practice of the universal fast leading up to Easter. Lent, as Pope Benedict XIV said, is the very badge of Christian warfare, and by it we prove ourselves not to be enemies of the cross of Christ. I hope that we can do more this Lent to encourage others to observe a more traditional Lenten fast, which is a Lenten fast of all meat and all animal products like dairy, eggs, and even fish, and that we do so for the conversion of those who have separated themselves from the church. We would also do well to remind Protestants that the church has the keys of the kingdom of heaven. This was given to St. Peter by our Lord and has passed down to his successors. And if they say that these ecclesiastical laws bind us, for instance, going to Mass on Sundays or other holy days of obligation or fasting or abstaining on certain days, these must be observed. 
and to do so, uh, to violate these is a mortal sin. So whatever we can do to bring about the conversion of sinners and Protestants this Lenten season by our word and by our example, as well as by our sincere fasting offered for this intention, I hope that you will consider praying about this more. Now on to the last topic of today's episode. It is the on the heirs of the Donatists and why they matter today. This is a recent article I wrote for the Fatima Center. And I'd like to start by reminding everybody that St. Augustine is at play here. Now, he was a true champion of the faith, and he was a fierce opponent of the heirs of the Manichaeans, which were founded in the 3rd century. They claimed to be following the final prophet, and they believed in this dualistic battle between the cosmic struggle between the forces of light and darkness. Now, beyond the Manichaeans, though, St. Augustine also fought very strongly against the heirs of the Donatists. The Donatists were a heretical sect that emerged under Donatus Magnus, a bishop of Carthage in the Roman province of Africa in the 4th and 5th centuries. Now, the Donatists originated as a response to the Diocletian persecution of Christians. During this period, some Christians in North Africa renounced their faith or cooperated with the Roman authorities to avoid persecution. And when the persecution ended, debate arose on how to deal with those who had apostatized from the faith or who had collaborated with the authorities. The Donatists argued that clergy who had betrayed their faith during the persecutions or were ordained by them were illegitimate. Now, they also contended that only those who remained faithful during the persecution could actually be true members of the church. Now, I go over in the article and talk about how St. Augustine's criticized them uh, for their stance, and he, of course, argued for the validity of the sacraments, which does not depend on the moral character of the minister, but on the efficacy of the sacraments themselves. St. Augustine also denounced the Donatists for insisting on rebaptizing individuals. Now, baptism, if validly conferred, of course, can never be repeated. But we can also learn from his example to attack air relentlessly, but never to attack the person, since our goal is not to win an argument, but to win over sinners to the truth. St. Augustine's writings persuade through scripture, philosophy, and logic, but not through attacks on individuals. We can uh, see this in the instances I have in that article and how he actually responded publicly to the Donatist. Now, several regional councils conveyed to address this Donatist controversy, including the Council of Arlenes in 314 and the Council of Carthage in 411. Now, the Council of Carthage marked a key moment in the condemnation of the Donatists. At this council, the church officially condemned Donatism as a heresy, and the decisions of this council were later confirmed by Pope Boniface I. And in the years following the Council of Carthage, imperial decrees were issued against the Donatists. The Emperor Honorus, for instance, passed laws that restricted the activities of Donatist clergy and supporters, and by the 7th century, Donatism had virtually faded away. Thus, we see that the church and the state should work hand in hand. We should work for whatever the church says, rightfully so, is um, is as moral. We should help to make it illegal. We see this especially true today with the errors of abortion, of contraception, of divorce, of in vitro fertilization. All of these need to be condemned, and we should not only condemn them in a religious sense, but to work to make them illegal, to stamp them out. Now, the Donatists argue that the clergy must be faultless for their ministry to be effective and for their prayers and sacraments to be valid. In our own lives, we might find in our own parishes or chapels personalities we find difficult. 
It may be that we don't appreciate our pastor's style of sermons or piety. We may find he plays favorites. We may not like the building and the architecture. But of course, we are Catholics. We are not Protestants who change which church we go to for human reasons. As long as the priest and the parish strive to spread and defend the true Catholic faith, we must support them. We must not fall into the errors of Donatists and feel that those who did not grow up as Catholic who have lapsed away from the faith for a time, or who are not as holy as we hope, are also not worthy of our support, our friendship, or our charity. There is much we can learn from the heirs of the Donatist. Some people falsely claim that traditional Catholics are Donatists, but this is not the case. If we can learn from the true heirs of the Donatists, we can see what we can do to address these heirs and their modern manifestations of them. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. I pray that this be a wonderful week for everybody, that everybody is persevering in the traditional Lenten fast. Go deeper this fast. Go deeper in prayer. Go deeper in fasting and absence and go deeper in almsgiving. And through these works of charity offered in the state of grace for souls, may God help bring about a greater resurgence of the sacred and the immaculate hearts in our world, in our parishes, and in our homes. Ad maiorum Dei Gloriam. We don't